Well, we, I don't know about you guys, but uh, are you excited that it's Christmas time? I love Christmas. Uh, I love all the lights. Uh, I love all the various connotations. Coming from the north, I used to like snow. I don't like it as much anymore. Uh, but learning how to celebrate Christmas without snow is just as wonderful, by the way, as it is with snow. I had to remind myself one time when I was in the south, when I walked into a place and they were selling Christmas lights in early part of December, like, oh yeah, it's Christmas. Because my only association was white, because it was white everywhere because of the snow. But more importantly, to understand the real, the real emphasis, the real meaning of Christmas, growing up in a pastor's family and living uh, and growing up in the church, having the pleasure of just being inundated that, uh, with that mentality about the, the joy of the birth of Jesus Christ. Every, every Christmas and every time on Christmas Day, my dad would sit down with us and we would, we would never touch anything until, uh, until we had the Christmas story. And I remember there was this one moment when my youngest brother was still learning the ropes of what the realities of Christmas was about. And every single time, the, my, my dad would ask this one question. So, boys, and there we are, five of us sitting there, kind of half staring at the presents under the tree, half listening to him. He'd say, so, boys, what is the, what is the meaning of Christmas? And, of course, he started with the youngest because all of us had been through this. And my youngest brother yelled out, presents! The four of us older ones just dropped our head like, great. We are going to get the lecture. Because he clearly had not been through this before. There's so much challenges very, that vary during this time, various different things that we struggle with, keeping our minds focused and elevated on the things of the birth of Christ. Things that, things that we know, blessings that we know the Bible speaks of to us, the coming Messiah. And yet it's also filled in tandem with so much degrees of a sin-cursed world and a reminder of brokenness and brokenness in families, brokenness in our own lives. We're reminded at times when relationships are not what they would, we would like them to be at various times. And we wrestle with various Christmas seasons and other celebratory times during the year where we're reminded of all of these occasions. Top all that with the commercialized culture of consumerism that we find ourselves in during this time, seeming to be functioning on overtime. Have you noticed that? Every season comes with some overemphasis of more buying of more gifts and more possessions and things you don't have that could really make your life better. You turn on a news outlet and their conversation is, how do you think consumers will spend their money that will help the economy? From economic difficulty to possessions and materialism. Top that all off with the average Hallmark Christmas movie, which a little hot chocolate in the warmth of a snow season that all of a sudden true love is possible. Who knew? It confuses us. 
in a sense of what Christmas is really designed and allows us the opportunity to pull our minds from the earthly and begin to start thinking about the heavenly. To think about the heavenly in such a way that we could not even think about it unless the heavenly was brought down to our level. So that we could understand it in a way that our earthly minds could never comprehend. Have you noticed this? That even, even at every Christmas season and every Christmas time, there's still this wrestling in your mind like, the baby who came, who is 100% God and 100% man, who is my sin bearer in the flesh. To think that the mother of this child, which we'll hear about over the course of the next, uh, next sermon next week, would look at this child and just be astounded of what she held in her hands. During this time that we have the reminder of the, the Christian message of the gospel in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but they would have eternal life. Christians, those of you who have trusted in Christ as your savior and turned from your sin and, and are now following Jesus Christ, it is it is so important that we take these moments of our life and, and refocus and recalibrate our minds to the heavenly. And it's so hard because I even remember one particular, uh, I would drive by this house uh, when I was living in the north, and it always astounded me, this conundrum of, of, of the culture. Like on the rooftop was a landing pad for Santa and his sleigh. And down below is a manger scene. And yet, you know, I, I would drive by that thinking, I wonder which one's winning. Like, which one is the greater focus? Even for many Christians who often at, at times get caught up in the culture and caught up in things that are just somewhat trivial. Where we find ourselves in those moments, Isaiah spoke to a people. Turn to, if you would, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah spoke to a people not filled with consumerism and materialism. That was the last thing that they were experiencing at this moment in their life. But he spoke to a people filled with heartache, filled with all kind of internal anguish and struggle and suffering and pain and anxiety and fear. Let me set the stage before we read Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7 this morning just so that we can calibrate our minds to the context. The prophets were designed in such a way, I hope you know, that there was this two-pronged function of a prophet. They were proclaimers of God's truth and predictors of God's future plan. They always functioned this way in the life of Israel, and the proclamation often would, unfortunately, in the life of Israel, had to revolve around repentance and judgment, and that God was going to, to deal with their rebellious souls. That is the account of Israel and Judah when you begin to realize that Isaiah doesn't even really introduce himself to, until Isaiah 6. 
where he says he saw a vision of God high and lifted up and he, stood and, the, and he saw the angelic host and he fell before and said, and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You can go back maybe sometime later today or this week and read the predicament of the life of Israel and Judah. Isaiah prophesies after the fall or after the split of the kingdom, after the, after the time period of Solomon where Israel was to the north and Judah was to the south. And you could read the account in 2 Kings, and I went back this week just to remind myself of the different components in the kingdom. And it just astounds me, especially in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's this ray of hope in the southern Judean kingdom. that There were these kings who would do right in the eyes of the Lord. Isaiah writes during the time period of uh, the king who reigned in the southern part of Judah, whose name was Ahaz, who had a fairly interesting lineage in his, in his family line. You think about he's coming from the line of the kings, Uzziah, who was a good king, and yet it says of Uzziah, who reigned 52 years, that, and yet he, although he served the Lord, he would not destroy the high places. His son Jotham reigned 16 years or so after that. He came and did, he, did, he did good in the eyes of the Lord, but he himself would not destroy the high places. Jotham dies, and his son Ahaz comes to the throne. And this is, in his life, you can find this in 2 Kings chapter 15 and 16, and it says, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel did. He would not only not tear down the high places, but he would find every high place and worship there to idolatrous pagan people, to pagan gods that didn't even exist. He would erect altars. He would do evil in all kinds of ways to such a degree where Ahaz is recorded as having sacrificed his own son on the offering to gain some level of favor. In Judah, there was a king who was an idol worshiper. In this context, you'll find that what happens in the life of the prophets is that most of their proclamation was judgment and hope. And like, of course they've got to put these two things together. Because you realize these were dark times in the life of Israel. Times of which the people had forgotten their God. They were worshiping on the high places and they were responding the way their king responded in idolatry. God would come down and warn these kings. And one of these moments we find in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 where the where the prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz, and we can even back it up for just a second now, because in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there is a context that's going on where the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel, and the Syrian king formed an alliance, and they were now going to destroy Judah. And of course, Ahaz, Isaiah is, is ministering during the time of Ahaz in Judah of the south, and he says to him, Ask the Lord for a sign. And even Ahaz is at least smart enough to say this. I'm not going to ask him. 
even as wicked as he was, he would say, I'm not asking the Lord and I'm not going to put him to the test. And Isaiah says to him, you're getting a sign anyway. And he said, the sign is going to be the sign of Emmanuel. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you can read, you can see this particular uh, reality when this comes to play. He says, for the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, we recognize and we understand that meaning as God's presence with us. And then Isaiah goes through these chapters, and we're going to read this portion in Isaiah 9, where his whole goal is to take the people living in idolatrous worship and suffering and fear, and those who would remember that there was a remnant in the line of the Davidic kings, that there would come one who would sit on that throne, and he would rule and reign, and to bring them hope once again in a time period when all spiritual rebellion was laying waste and, re and wreaking havoc in the lives of the people of Israel, both north and south. And he reminds them of this precious truth in Isaiah 9. Notice, follow along with me here. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter times, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, and on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It is our duty this morning as we look at this text together to just reinforce this reality. Christians, rejoice. Your king, our king, is coming. He is going to rule in righteousness forever. You know, we may not be in a place where we are familiar with the divided kingdom, but we are in places where we can understand a, divide, a divided soul in a perspective of a consumeristic culture. Divided attention, divided perspective, divided people and divided politicians. This message, when you read Isaiah 9, I, just walking through this this week, there's moments in study where I just, you just have to stop for a moment and just say, 
Oh God, you are so wise. That you take people who, who you allow to rule and you bring them to an end and you set their time short and that their time is on a schedule and it's your schedule and it's coming to an end and you will rule and reign. And it just causes you to want to lift your eyes to the heavens and just say, I want you to come in, in, in justice and righteousness. There's something about it as we read it in the context of Isaiah that I could only imagine from Isaiah's vantage point how much he must have longed for, the, for, for his people to see the truce. And yet I'm, I'm so reminded as I read the book of Isaiah that God always leaves a remnant of people who believe. Yes, there was much idolatry, there was much heartache and much suffering, but there were remnants of the faithful that were connected with people like Isaiah and Isaiah's disciples that when he would say this, they would be in their soul saying, oh dear God, please bring this, this to an end and come and rule your people in a way like there has never been before. If your soul as a Christian still doesn't long for that, and you're caught up in all this cultural stuff that prohibits you from taking your gaze and looking heavenward, There's, we, we have to discipline our minds to do that. Because it doesn't even come naturally to us. We wouldn't even just think about it. We have to, before we even get out of bed in the morning, don't you just find yourself sometimes at the moment you wake up, that you're just like, dear God, help me today. I know what I'm going to face, and I know there's going to be things that wanting to pull me away from you. But God, if you don't guide my heart, I'm going to find myself in despair and fear and anxiety, not being able to make sense of it. And, I, and the prophets of old wanted the people to make sense of this glorious plan of God in the midst of a people who would continue to move away from him. He gives us these incredible, glorious truths and these prophecies, and he gives us three particular proclamations and predictions in this text, because, of course, that was the function of a prophet. You read back, and you could go back to Deuteronomy 18 and see that functional nature that when a prophet prophesied, if they prophesied and it didn't come true, then you stone them. So when he would say things like this as a prophet of the Lord, let's just keep ourselves reminded that he did so not in some kind of lighthearted manner, like, hey, just want to tell you this prediction I had. He knew that what he would say that would come out of his mouth would be life or death if something didn't happen to establish the security of that proclamation from God. It's so fascinating here in Isaiah 9, he gives us these three different proclamations. I want to start with this one. Here's proclamation number one that was a prediction that would happen in the future. And of course, just remind yourself, Isaiah had multiple prophetic predictions that came true that would validate the message of the things that were yet to come true in the future. That's the way it worked. This glorious proclamation, a child is born. Now, this is fascinating to me when we get to the text because when you get into Isaiah 9 and in verse number 6, for unto us a child is born, it's always given in the sense of the present. And in fact, because it's a predictive element, you would expect it to be in a future tense. 
he will be born at some point in the future. But remember when a prophet is, is proclaiming the very words and, the, and he is the mouthpiece of God and is speaking from God's vantage point, kind of take this in your own mind and say, this is God speaking through the prophet and in God's mind, he, he proclaims it in the past tense. For a child has been born because in the mind of God, the very prophet's prediction was as good as done. And it could be viewed back from eternity past when the all-wise, all-sovereign God would say, this proclamation is as good as done. And so when, when Isaiah would prophesy it, he could say, for unto us a child has been born, and for uh, to us a son has been given. You can count on it. Because in God's mind, the wisest individual who would ever be and ever was would look back and convey a message to say from his own mouthpiece, the prophet, when I declare things, no one, no one can thwart my plan. Oh, I'm so thankful that all of a sudden we look back and we see through the history of time and have the, have the record that that child was born and his name was Jesus and he truly was the Emmanuel that Isaiah prophesied. A child who was God with us. Who was prophesied of this in the angelic declaration in Matthew chapter 1 to Mary. can only imagine this imagery of, of the angel coming to Mary saying, you're going to give birth to the Christ child? Perhaps some of you who are here who are with child could maybe picture that more, uh, more uh, adequately to say, to think to yourself that you would have given birth to the Christ child? And that prophecy of Isaiah's text would come true in a time period of the most utter despair of the people of Israel's, to lift their gaze from the time that, they, that they, they saw idolatry and suffering and heartache, and they would lift their eyes to say, there is coming a day. There is going to be a child. Now, think about it in this regard. He was promised from the Davidic line. David was promised a kingdom and that his seed would sit on that throne forever and ever. And now, if you were thinking about that, in light of Ahaz, where would your mind go? Like, when is this guy coming? He can't get here fast enough. I mean, this guy's wicked. He's, he's, he's even sacrificing his own children. He's calling the people to be idolatrous. He's tearing and dismantling components of the wealth of the temple, and he's sending it off to the Assyrian king as tribute so that they would come and rescue them from Israel and Syria. The land of the people, were dis, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were disunited. They, they couldn't come together. Everything was in disarray. I can only imagine when Isaiah said something like this, it just challenged the faithful individuals to say, please, Lord, send him soon. Let him come the idea of righteousness and justice was, was proclaimed at the backdrop of injustice to the widows, not taking care of the poor, idolatrous families, 
So when, they, when Isaiah spoke of justice, these people could resonate. People who had been put into despair were exiled because of their unfaithfulness. But it was God's presence that sustained them. The faithful of Israel would continue to enjoy these promises that they would, once, they would look forward to through the words of Isaiah that this child was going to be born and he was given to them and he would fulfill all that David said that he would fulfill. He would be the one in Deuteronomy 18 where, where Moses said these words, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among my brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my, to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What does this do for us when we know that a child had been sent on our behalf and we know his name is Jesus, the Emmanuel, the God with us, the present individual and presence of God? It's supposed to do something for you in, the, in, your, in your life of suffering. I can only imagine this morning that we, all, we don't all just come here out of the happy Christmas season and flipped on our lights, the lights of our soul, and put on the happy face and said, everything's great. You realize that we all go through different challenges and suffering, and what does this reminder bring to us? It reminds us that in the darkest moments of Israel's history, there was always the light of the prophetic message of these prophets to say, there's something bigger than your suffering. There's something more important than the moment you're experiencing in the present. There's more than just your depression going on. There's, there's a bigger something at play than your fear and your anxiety and your suffering and your disunited family and the difficulty within all of the, you, the, the culture at large. There is a God who stands above it, whose presence is with us in our suffering, and it's not some level of uncertain joy. Christians, we have joy unspeakable in a way that even, I always laugh at this, in a way that we don't need vitamin D for. See, the, the reality is, is that our life encompassed with joy and even sunlight in and of itself, whether it's here or not, cannot take it away from us. In the darkest moments of your life, it is the God of heaven that speaks to us through the prophet. It says, there is hope. Because hope isn't bound in the culture. It isn't bound in your good works. It's bound up in his son who would come, the Emmanuel, the present Christ child. Oh, this Jesus, friends, he is not only good for when it's good for you. He is good all the time. Not just at a season like this where all of a sudden we set aside the normal components of our life to gravitate our minds toward the heavenly Christ child, but it is something we have to fight to remind ourselves each and every day. And do you know what's at stake? It's your hope. 
the life that you lived re-energized and infused and indwelt with the Spirit of God in such a way that the Christian can look at life and suffering and consumerism and a, and a landing pad for Santa Claus and they can look through it and they can say, that doesn't matter. What matters is this. Jesus Christ will rule and reign with justice and righteousness forever. And we, believers, of all people, adopted into the family of the, as children of God, have been brought into his kingdom. Don't let it be said of you, Christian, that you serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other. The prophet proclaimed this to a, to a group of people rebellious in heart and idolatrous in action. To reclaim their mind and recalibrate them that this Emmanuel would come in justice and righteousness of which they would give an account. Believers, all the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, aren't you thankful that when you have a God who comes in judgment and righteousness, that he does so with love and compassion? That you don't have to fear the fires of hell, but you can be lifted to the loftiest heights and say, I'm part of that kingdom. My life is different. I think differently. That is the prophet's hope to the people. Oh, he's coming. A child is born. He moves on to say this and proclaim this, that a king will arise. This child is not just some ordinary child who was born in a manger. He was a child like no other. A child which would have the perfect righteousness of God, who at his sacrifice would be able to to offer a sacrifice for our sin and welcome us as kingdom citizens to rule and reign with Christ. What an amazing proclamation. A king will arise. I think the reality was is they're asking questions. A king like Uzziah? A king like Solomon? No, maybe a king like David. We, we like David. David was a man of God after God's own heart. But let me tell you what, there's a coming king who will not just be a man after God's own heart, but he will be a man with the actual heart of God. It won't be just a look-alike. It will be the very heart of God encapsulated in the person of Christ, in the Christ child. And everyone who saw him and people who heard him would say things like this after he taught. It always blows me away in the New Testament. He taught with such authority and hope and compassion. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you the rest for your soul that you have longed for. In the midst of this, this coming king, he describes who he is and in Isaiah 9, in 9, verse 6, and I love this. He says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What are we to make of that? Like, clearly we don't think about a political structure, but here's what the idea of the kings was all about. 
is when a king would come out dressed in his robe and his garments to depict his kingliness. He would often have the king's robe overlaid on his shoulders. And he uses this to depict and describe the king who would come, who's, who's, in which the government itself, all the nations, all the political rulers would pay homage and obedience to this one who wrapped himself and is not just a separate government, but he is the government. And there could be no better governor or king than a righteous, sinless, grace-filled, sacrificial, omnipresent, all-knowing, kind-hearted God like this. I read these depictions and I just think to myself when I turn on various news outlets and see the rulers across the world and think there's no one who is like this. But there's coming a one who's described here as the wonderful counselor. What's he trying to display to us? The one who had such an incredible amount of wisdom. And only we get a glimpse of it in the kings like with Solomon, who would sit before his people and day after day, people would come with various challenges. And people would say, wise King Solomon, what are we to do? And he would proclaim a sense of wisdom and justice. This king would have the wisdom that far exceeded King Solomon. This king would be so filled with knowledge and truth that when he gave you the instruction for your life that was sufficient for your soul every single day, it was sufficient for your, for your anger, it was sufficient for your fear, it's sufficient for your depression, it's sufficient for your family problems, that this king would offer instruction and you and I would read his words in our devotionals in, in, in mornings and in evenings and in family worship and we would sit back and go, Oh my goodness, he's so wise. He is the wonderful counselor. You know, I share in various components, not because uh, just in counseling ministry and discipleship ministry, that we point people in our discipleship care to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and their job is not to say, Oh, pastor, oh, Christian friend, you are amazing. I mean, everything that I do, I'm a thief right from the Bible. I give you nothing new every Sunday, and I steal it all from him. Because nothing I got is good enough. So if I take these heavenly truths, and we can implant them in our souls together as a congregation, and lift our gaze to the heavens for a moment... Well, we can see that our hope lies not in our experiences here on earth, but our hope lies in Jesus Christ, the coming King, whose counsel to us is so precious. Believer, don't for one second believe that our world has some corner market on speaking truth into your life in a secularized, humanistic way. All the truths that you need to live by for your spiritual sustenance is given in this book. 2 Peter 1.3 says that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all there for you. 
and for me. So that I can retain my hope from this wonderful counselor who's also not, he doesn't just stop at his, his miraculous wisdom. But he goes on to say, he is the mighty God. This one whose might that no, no one dares to stand against him. Oh, I can't wait for one day when not a soul and not a ruler in the world, when they had even an inkling of a thought about going up against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, says to themselves, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Because I, remember, I know what happened. I know a little bit of what, where earth had been. He is the mighty God, the strategic ruler and powerful sovereign of the universe. He's the everlasting father. I don't think here, uh, yes, it has a connotation of our theological idea of eternality, but here I think he's going back to the Davidic idea of the covenant and saying this one child who will arise to be king will reign forever and ever and ever. As his reign will have no end. Like, if you're out there and you're saying, I'm not part of that kingdom and I haven't been adopted into that person's family, I hope you're saying to yourself, I probably should think about this. Because every Christian here is, they're saying, sign me up. <laughs> if there was a, a train leaving and heaven was its destination, it would be full because we just want to go and we want to experience the sovereign rule of an all-wise strength God who will reign forever and ever. He's not just that. He's the Prince of Peace. All in a world where we get so caught up in everything that's going on and all these things and the longing for peace. And don't get me wrong. I long for peace, not just on a political sense. Peace for my soul. The peace that passes all understanding, according to Philippians, where all of a sudden, the peace in our soul begins to rule in such a degree and reign in our lives where my hope and my frustrations and my fear and my anxiety of what about should I do about this and what about this over here and there's so much heartache in the world that a ruler who will come and put families back together to put people in their places where they need to be so that they all as one collective voice can proclaim the glories of the king. The king that will arise, King Jesus will be the only one who is worthy of that praise. The only one who has the rightful heir of the line of David from the kingdom of Judah who will sit and will reign with righteousness and yet his reign will be described as unending prosperity and peace. Look at the proclamation number three. A kingdom, a king will arise and a kingdom will be established. I don't think it's too far from us to at least say this. We realize that the kingdom of God's precious, wise, justice, and righteous reign is future. 
It's not today. At least last time I checked the news venues, is I don't see that going on. Which means it's something that is coming and it's going to be so good. And this kingdom that will be established based upon the rightful work of the king. Jesus himself sacrificed for us on our behalf so that we could find life eternal and be a citizen of this kingdom. I love what he says in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David. Okay, just think about this for a moment. He puts this little nugget in there for you. On the throne of David to help you realize it's a literal kingdom. It is something that every Jew longed for. Even the disciples close to the death of Jesus would look at Jesus and say, are you setting up your kingdom now? Jesus was so careful in his parables to say a king went off into a far country and they did not know when he was going to return. To highlight the reality of the two comings. And Christian, he's coming again. He's coming for us. He's coming to make his name known to the nations. He is coming to declare his excellency and his righteousness to every corner of the world. Unending prosperity, unending peace, unending security. Like I don't even have to think about what's in my 401k. I can just wake up and be, he's still ruling, right? Okay, we're good. This is all I need. Oh, and I love this. Unending justice. That no evildoer, no wicked presence, no sin will be just said, well, we just got to wait. The ruler of righteousness will be the judge. And he will reign with love and compassion to his people. How will this all happen? Well, he sums it up and he says, well, certainly not going to be because of us. Did you notice this? He didn't say, well, if you muster up enough strength and you tear down those high places and stop that rebellious, idolatrous heart, well, you need to do all that. But salvation never belonged to good works of the children of Israel. They belonged, salvation belonged only and solely to the God who would come and save them. Who would accomplish this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. At Christmas, we have this glorious time to remind ourselves of what the wisdom of God accomplished through the incarnation of the Son. On your behalf, on my behalf. If that child wouldn't have come, we would not be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're not adopted into his family, just hear these words in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a serious 
time in your life if you have not repented of your sin. You have an opportunity, but this kind of person who practices these things will never be allowed into the kingdom of heaven unless they repent of their sin and they turn to Jesus Christ. And you can hear what 1 Corinthians 11 continues to say right after this, and such were some of you. Because that was us, Christians. We are washed and we are sanctified. You are justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christian, during this Christmas season, don't forget this. Take your eyes off of all the consumeristic things, material possessions. Help your children not focus on presents and gifts and all these things. And it's not like you're sinning because you have presents under the tree. But if all of a sudden that we proclaim a message where that's the focal point, we've missed an opportunity as believers to lift the eyes of our children towards the heavenlies and look to the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, of which his government and his righteousness will never end. Christian, work hard at not getting distracted. It'll take a lot of your energy not to be distracted from all this cultural confusion as to what matters the most. Let's help each other as we sing, as we celebrate that our God is the central greatest gift who would give us the gift of his son, the Emmanuel, the, pre the God's presence with us. Help us never to forget it as we come into each and every Christmas season and each and every day of our lives that this God will never leave us or forsake us, and he's taking us to a place filled with rest and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Through the words of your prophet Isaiah, to remind us and to lift our gaze to the heavens for a brief moment so that our minds can work through the suffering and fix themselves on the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for caring for us, to help us by giving us the truths of your word so that we can anchor our minds and our souls to these truths so that we don't become distracted and we can retain our focus for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. 